Good morning. I've got a few questions to you all to, to start us off this morning. Steph and I have been here for about a year and a half now. Can you believe it's been that long? And we feel like we've gotten to know you, some of you, most of you, a little bit, uh, some a little bit more, but we want to know you, want to know you even more. So, so here's three questions and, and we need some response. We need uh, either raise your hand uh, if you, if you respond in, in, in the affirmative to these questions. Or if you're really jazzed by the, the question, you can clap your hands or maybe stomp your feet. Yeah, or maybe shout out a holy roar. Okay, maybe you won't do that. But at least raise your hand, all right? These are the three questions. First question, who in this church likes going to the lake? Ah, there we go. All right. Second question, who in here likes boats? You got boats too? All right. Last question, who likes to fish? Guys, I think you're going to love this scripture passage for today. Because we got boats, and we got lake, and we got fishing going on, all right? This text, I think Luke wrote with Heartland Community Church in mind. So prepare yourself for Luke's account of this good news story of Jesus. Now before we read our text, let's briefly consider where we've been in Luke's gospel thus far. Previously in the gospel, Jesus preached at his home church in Nazareth. That was last week, and and Stephanie preached on that that passage. And Jesus was in a synagogue there, which is sort of the the parallel to our churches, and he was in his his home church, if you will. And in in Jesus' sermon, he he quoted that he was the fulfillment of, of these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he quoted, to preach good news to the poor. Now, if you remember, after an initial excitement at his words, Jesus then said a few things about God's extravagant embrace of outsiders, and this got him into trouble. His fellow church members rejected him, unwilling to welcome the outsiders whom Jesus considered poor. Now, after this, Jesus escaped their attempt to throw him off the cliff, and he went to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is a lake town. This is where we get into our, our lakes and boats and fishing. Capernaum is it's set on the Sea of Galilee. Our text calls it Lake Gennesaret. It's the same lake, two different names for it. And this is where the disciple Peter, this is where he had his home. He, he lived in Capernaum. And Capernaum became the, the home base for Jesus' ministry, all right? He traveled around, but this was, this was his home base, this lake town here. And we see very early on that he practices what he preached, what he preached about bringing good news to the poor, he practiced in Capernaum, bringing healing, meeting all kinds of needs to all who, who, who brought, brought folks to him. Now, because of, because of this, the, the people in Capernaum, they didn't want him to leave their town. This is in contrast to the people of Nazareth who ran him, who ran him out of town. And so they, you know, they, they say to him, but, but why, Jesus? Why do you have to leave? Don't leave. We're just getting started. Please stay. Jesus tells them that he has to leave, though, and this is why. And he gives them his purpose statement. We said our purpose statement just minutes ago. Here's Jesus' purpose statement. Jesus says in Luke 4, I must preach the good news of God's kingdom in other cities, too. For this is why I was sent. This is Jesus' 
purpose statement, to preach the good news of God's kingdom in other cities too. And so that's why he leaves Nazareth and goes to Capernaum. And that's where we arrive at our text. We're beside the lake, and Jesus is trying to, to sail out so that he can, he can go to some other cities. But before this happens, we've got this incident with, with, with a couple boats and some fish. So before we hear this passage, let's prepare our hearts to receive God's word through prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts give you delight as you look down upon us this morning. Amen. Luke 5, verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them, and were, they were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. <laughs> when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night long but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Beside the lake, there's Jesus. And the crowd is pressing in on him to hear the word of God. They're pressing in, getting as close as possible, earnestly desiring to hear the word of God from the lips of Jesus. Now, two things strike me right at the outset of our text. First, it strikes me that the author, Luke, never tells us exactly what Jesus was talking about. Our, our text, what we read at least, it said that, that they were hearing the word of God, but what words were these? Were, were they the prophets? Were they Moses and the law? What, what was the word of God that Jesus was saying? Now, we're not told in the text we read, but I think that's because Luke just told us two verses prior in Jesus' mission statement. It's, it's hard to, to, to overemphasize the significance of, of this purpose statement. Jesus surely was preaching the good news of God's kingdom beside the lake. That's what they were pressing in on him to hear. To hear the word of God was to hear the word of God's kingdom. So this begs another question. What is God's kingdom? 
We hear that phrase a lot, right? And if you've been around here, you've certainly heard it. And if you've read the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, come across the, the phrase a lot of times. So, so what is the kingdom of God? Now imagine a non-Christian neighbor comes up to you and, and asks, what's the kingdom of God mean? How do you respond? <laughs> I, I imagine the conversation going like this. Hey, you're, you're a Christian, right? Uh, something, something on the History Channel sparked my interest around Christmas time, so I've been dabbling a bit in the New Testament. I keep coming across this phrase, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. What is that? How would you answer? Do you know, do you know what you would say? I imagine that many of us would have a hard time really defining the kingdom of God to our neighbor. And if that's you, then then take comfort in the fact that it's really Jesus' fault. You see, our good Lord never defines this phrase, kingdom of God. It's sort of this mysterious thing that, that we get glimpses of here and there, but never really defines it, plain and simple. Instead, Jesus tells stories, right? Kingdom parables, we call them. The kingdom of God, it's like a mustard seed. When scattered on the ground, it's the smallest of all the seeds of the, of the earth. But when it's planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all the vegetable plants. It produces such large branches that the birds in the sky are able to nest in its shade. That's what the kingdom of God is like. At least that's a picture of it. What in the world does that mean? But it's also to remember that we not only get a picture of what the kingdom of God is like in Jesus' teachings... We also see a picture in his actions. So before Luke tells us Jesus' purpose statement to proclaim the kingdom of God, he gives us a snapshot of Jesus at work. Silencing, Jesus silences the demons of a tormented man and brings him liberation. Jesus heals a friend's mother-in-law from her high fever and puts her back on her feet. Jesus welcomes all the unhealthy relatives and diseased acquaintances of those who have heard about him. And and Jesus places his hands on them and heals them. That's also what the kingdom of God is like. Healing, freedom. That's a picture of the kingdom of God. So, in light of Jesus' teachings and his deeds, I want to offer a, a working definition for your back pocket. It's it's in this, this new sermon notes part of the, of the bulletin under key definitions. Now, this definition still probably won't make sense to your neighbor, but hopefully it'll begin a conversation and get you going in the right direction. Here's the definition. I've actually borrowed most of it from from the Luke scholar Joel Green, who's a, he's a big, a kind of a big wig at Fuller Seminary in the, in the New Testament world. So, so here's the definition. The kingdom of God is a new world order, wherein the redemptive purposes of God are at work, bringing release and human wholeness and community. That's a mouthful still, right? The kingdom of God is a, a new world order, it's, it's a new way of being. It's a new, a new realm, right? It's a new way of life. <laughs> Wherein the redemptive purposes of God are at work, and they bring release 
which so many of us experience as the forgiveness of sins, right? Forgiveness in Christ, that is where the kingdom of God is. And we experience that as human wholeness in community, that is where the kingdom of God is. We experience new life in the Spirit, and we bear the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and, and we belong to the family of God. That's, that's this new world order. That's the kingdom of God that Jesus is proclaiming, I believe, on the, on the lakeshore, on the seashore at uh, the Sea of Galilee. There's a lot more to say about the kingdom of God, and, and, and two weeks from now, our, our text, the phrase, shows up again, so we'll deal with it more then. Uh, but I just wanted to, this is the first time here in Jesus' purpose statement where the phrase is mentioned in Luke. It's mentioned another 33 times or so, so I wanted to sort of get us on the right page as we, as we continue to walk through Luke the next, the, the upcoming months. One last thing, in light of Luke 4, you remember the, the, the wilderness, Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, right? The devil tempts Jesus, if you remember, with the kingdoms of the world. And so it's important to remember that, that uh, while this is the first mention of the kingdom of God, we already have a sense of this, the kingdoms of the world, that there's another kingdom, there's another uh, world order at work right? And, and the devil tries to tempt Jesus with those kingdoms back in Luke 4, but instead Jesus resists and proclaims the kingdom of God. All right, so we've digressed a little bit from our text, so let's come back to the lake, all right? Are you coming with me? Are we at the lake? You can see the water. Oh, it's beautiful. I love the lake. And you're among the bustling crowds, Shoulder to shoulder with the guy next to you, you're eager to see what Jesus is about to do. And here's the second thing that strikes me from the outset of our passage. I'm struck also by the way the crowds pressed in around Jesus in order to hear this word of the kingdom. They are desperate, friends. They are hungry for knowledge thirsty for justice amid the unjust kingdoms of the world, and they are probably literally hungry as well. So they, they press in to hear the word of God. Now what strikes me in all this is just how different their situation is from what we do every week in church. Now, I don't want to make any judgments yet, but let's just, uh, let's just imagine, imagine this for a moment. Imagine that, that Stephanie had a, well, she's my wife, so she, um, in terms of the demonstration, doesn't count. <laughs> imagine Dan, you know, the, the closest member here, had a, imagine we had a tape measure, and, and he was holding one end, and I, and I had the other end. I don't know, how many feet do you think it is between me and you? Fifteen feet? Guys, people are not fifteen feet from Jesus in our scripture text. They are pressing in on him. They are up in his grill, in his space, because they want to get as close as possible to hear the word of God. In fact, they're too close for comfort, and so Jesus paddles off in the boat and speaks from the lake. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to make you get up from the back and come to the front. We can't just make a simple judgment that, you know, that that's, that that's what we ought to do. Because for one, there's some significant differences. You know, they don't, they don't have a sound system. A shout out to our sound guys. We're, we're glad we have a sound system. So you guys don't have to be so close to me. <laughs> without a mic, no, but seriously, without a mic to amplify his voice, Jesus 
uses the natural amphitheater of the water, uh, of the boat on the lake, right? And so one of the reasons the crowds are pressing in is because they can't hear him unless they're, they're close. So that's a significant difference from, from that context and our context. And another difference, perhaps the most glaringly obvious difference, is this. I'm not Jesus. <laughs> it's my aim and my prayer every week to preach the Word of God. And I desire with all my heart that, that what I say aligns with, with what Jesus would say. But I do not claim to, 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 to be infallible in the way Jesus was infallible when he preached the Word of God. So those are two big differences. The, the sound system thing and, and I'm not Jesus. That being said, though, Luke is still trying to teach us something about, about the crowds pressing in and our relation to the word. The crowd is exemplary here. <laughs> They're opposite of the crowd in Nazareth that Pastor Stephanie talked about last week. That crowd <laughs> pushed Jesus away. This crowd presses in to hear the word of God. Luke's trying to tell us to be like the crowd, to hunger for God's word, to press in on Jesus, the word made flesh, to ingest this word by eating the word broken for you and drinking the word poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The word of God came to John in the wilderness two weeks ago, and now that word is at the seashore and the ministry has begun. And the good news of God's kingdom is being proclaimed in every city, every highway and byway, every street and alley, city and countryside. And the kingdom is being embodied in the ministry of Jesus, his words and his teachings. So the crowds rightfully press in to hear and to experience Jesus and the word of God that he brings. So I implore you, friends, hunger for God's word. Be like that crowd beside the lake, and hunger for God's word. Press in to the gospel of Luke over the next three months, like never before. Or perhaps you've dealt with Luke for quite some time. Press into it with as much vigor as you can muster with the help of God's grace. For the God we serve, friends, is not willing, is not, does not see it fitting to be God without us, God from afar, God at a distance. But the real God sees it fitting to be God with us, God up close and personal, God in the person of Jesus. And we ought to press in. God wants us to press in and experience that reality. So let's hunger for God and for his word. God will satisfy. The image of the crowds pressing in around Jesus reminds me of my time in college. Got some folks in college here. Hope College, Holland, Michigan. This text reminds me of, uh, of, what, of what we're called extreme Bible studies, right? Because when you're in college, everything is extreme. You know, it's just sort of part of the language. And I was introduced to these extreme Bible studies my first week of college as, as a freshman. They were led by a couple seniors at Hope. And, you know, when you're a freshman, the senior's like the top dog. You know, you don't, I mean, you're, you're the newbie, right? You're, you're unfamiliar. The senior's been there. The senior, 
he's the top dog. You trust the senior more than you trust your parents, more than you trust your girlfriend. You trust the seniors, right? That's the relationship of a freshman to a senior, at least where I grew up. So at Hope College, extreme Bible studies led by seniors. Now I find my way into one of these Bible studies my first week, and they were, and we, and we gathered around the Word of God. And at first I was curious, and then I was gripped. Most of us in this small group had grown up in church, but, we, but we'd never really been exposed to the Word of God. And we were hungry, friends. The kingdoms of the world had left us empty, and we were so desperate for the good news of Jesus. We were desperate for the news that in Christ our sins are forgiven, that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our sins from us. And we were desperate for the news of new life in the Spirit. That once saved, one receives a gift of the Spirit, and then God works the fruits of the Spirit into the fabric of our lives. And then commissions us to spend our lives doing something that matters. We were were hungry for that word. So that small group of us, here we were in the lobby of Durfee Hall, stunned by the word of God, even though we had grown up in church our whole lives. We were stunned by its breath, its power, its beauty. Now, believe it or not, we, we met for six or seven hours a night, starting around 8 p.m. and going to 2 or 3 a.m. And we did this for four nights straight. It's extreme, right? Extreme Bible study. <laughs> Nothing else seemed to matter, for this was the word of God, and we pressed into it, and we couldn't help it. The, the Spirit compelled us to gather around Jesus and hear the word. We were hungry. I think that's happening in our text for today. Now, over the next several months, the small group grew and grew, and it became a much larger group. And I remember a time in the basement of Colin Hall, and, and this good-looking senior named Stu Cousins was preaching. Now, I don't even remember what he was talking about, but I do remember the crowd. <laughs> we were shoulder to shoulder. Everyone was trying to get a little closer to hear what he was saying. No, no sound system here. Students were standing on couches so they could see. A sea of college students fed up with the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of hatred that reigned in our high school cafeterias and make us feel like we're not good enough, excluding and name-calling. We were fed up with the kingdoms of the world. We were fed up with the kingdoms of academic pressure that make one feel like they're only as good as their grades. Fed up with the athletic pressure that make one felt like if you don't have enough points, you're nothing. Friends, we were fed up with the kingdom of addiction to alcohol and drugs and pornography. And so here we were, a sea of college students, pressing in to hear the word of God, the word that we were forgiven in Christ, and there was new life in the Spirit. And we didn't have to waste the only life that we had, but we could live it for God, with God. Friends, that's my prayer for us today for myself, for you, no matter how old you are, that we don't have to be college students to to be extreme about our approach to the Word. May we stay hungry. Yes, God's Word satisfies in every way, 
But we still must eat from the table of the word again and again and again. We need its nourishment every day, every week. I think that's how we live out the first part of our scripture passage for today. There are some, uh, for later, some, some questions in your bulletin, living the text, and you can reflect on those uh, in your own time later today. Now on to the second part. Yes, there's a second part. Actually, I've only set the stage and dealt with verse 1. We've got 10 more verses yet, my friends. So now is when you check your watch and uh, you have that inner dialogue about how long you can hold out before you make the run to the restroom, right? Am I right? Anyone else do that? I, just, I have to admit, so last week I was at Holland, Michigan, right? You know, I, I thank you all. I was thank my wife especially and those who helped out. You know, I was at a, at a pastor's retreat with friends. And, and we went to a church, sort of this prestigious church in Holland. And they had that the reputable preacher John Brown there. And he was delivering a, a, a riveting message. And I was captivated. I didn't want to miss a word of it. But I had a lot of water and coffee. And I just, I say that to identify with you, right? He got through and I thought he was about done with the sermon. And then he said, and that's point one. Two more points left. And I'm sorry, I made the walk of shame and I went and used the restroom. And so I say that to give you permission, right? The Lord knows, right? The Lord made us. The Lord made our bodies. Do what you got to do, all right? I just, all right, no walk of shame here, okay? All right, just clear, clear that up. Second part of the sermon, right? All right, we're ready. So the boats. <laughs> Y'all like boats, right? Let's talk about the boats. Verse 2. Jesus saw two boats sitting on the lake. The fishermen had gone ashore and were washing their nets. So Jesus boarded Peter's boat and, and had Peter row out a little bit. And then the end of verse 3. Jesus sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. I love this. <laughs> Jesus makes the boat his pulpit. It would have been too much work to get a canoe in here and me to preach from it. But I, I did think about it. Just before, you know, Luke informs his readers that, that Jesus is making his preaching rounds through the synagogues, right? Through these, these religious institutions that are much like our churches. And, and, and we have to be honest, right? Uh, Jesus, this was a main part of his ministry, was, was preaching in the synagogues, preaching in what's like our churches. But here he is. And it's interrupted, right? The narrative of preaching in the churches is interrupted by this boat. <laughs> the speaking tour is interrupted by this boat. And he makes the boat his pulpit. And I think this is, is hugely significant. I wonder, we've all heard about how God calls us to be on mission, right? And we've heard it, and, and in some sense we get it. But I still think the first thing we often think of in terms of, of God's mission is serving as a volunteer in the church. Now, don't get me wrong, we want our volunteers. <laughs> serving in God's church, we hope and we pray, is serving God's mission. We need our devoted servants of God to keep this place running and fulfilling its purpose in the world, to love God, love others, and be disciples who make disciples. But we should also think about God's mission for our lives, in terms of our workplaces, our neighborhoods, and our third places. 
Jesus isn't just in synagogues. He's on the boat, and he's preaching. By third places, I mean those places where we spend a fair amount of time. We all have them. They're, they're not our workplace. They're not school. They're not home. For some, it's the, the gymnasiums where we watch our kids play basketball. For some, it's a playground. For some, it's a restaurant we frequent all, often. For some, sadly, it's the hospital waiting room. These are our third places where we spend our time, not work, not church. And I think Jesus in the boat, using the boat as his pulpit, is trying to, this is just another way, I think, of emphasizing that we are called to fulfill God's purpose in our lives, not just by serving in the church, but also by serving in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and in our third places. (laughs) What if more preachers used boats for pulpits? What if all of us who call ourselves Christians used more restaurant tables for, for platforms of sharing what God has done for us? What if we used more tractors for pulpits? Well, in that case, we'd probably just be converting corn, right? So maybe not the tractors, but what if our cubicles became our pulpits, our platform for sharing Jesus' double grace, the forgiveness we have in Christ, and the new life we share in the Spirit? Friends, this is easier said than done, I know, but let us not underestimate the deep hunger inside our neighbor. Let's not be unaware of the the empty pit that is in our co-worker's life. Let us not forget that so many of us are, are like I was and like my other college students were as freshmen, pressing in to hear the word, desperate, hungry, good news of God's grace. This brings us to the fishing. Jesus is at the lake on the boat with the crowds pressing in on him, and his friend Simon, also known as Peter, these are the same names, Simon, Peter, same person, and he's there with his co-workers, and they've had a long night of work. You've had long nights of work, right? And when you've had long nights of work, do you want someone to tell you to do more work even when that work has, has been pretty fruitless so far? No, <laughs> you don't want that. So Jesus gets an idea. <laughs> Long night of work for Peter and his co-workers and nothing to show for it. And Peter says, Jesus says, Simon, row out further into the deep water. Simon, drop your nets for a catch. You can hear Simon's exasperation and his frustration in his response. Master, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing. But because you say so, I'll drop the nets. Because you say so, I'll drop the nets. You should know at this point that the specific type of nets being used, scholars tell us that they're called trammel nets. Trammel nets. They're made of linen And they're visible to fish during the day. That's important. And so for that reason, these nets are only used at night when the fish can't see them. And they require require two or four men to deploy, and they need washing every morning. And they're they're using these nets all night. That's the only time they can use them. And and now now they're going hungry for some fish because they caught nothing. So this heightens the mystery of of, of the power of Jesus even more. 
when Jesus tells them to drop the nets once more, it's daylight. The nets would be visible to the fish at this point in the day. What a pointless task Jesus is calling Peter and his companions to do. Maybe you have felt called to do some pointless tasks throughout your life. Maybe God is calling you even now to do something that doesn't quite make sense, something that's common tra- something that's contrary to common sense. Might be big, it might be small. But friends, when we experience this, when we experience that still small voice of the spirit nudging us to do something, let's imitate Peter and do it. Because you say so, I'll drop the nets. Of course, hearing this still small voice, it's a, it's a skill that's developed over time, right? The Spirit works this into our discipleship over time. And so we, we have to weigh every nudging we get with, with Scripture. And if it's crazy enough, probably with some wise friends wh- whom we trust also have the Spirit to listen. But let's not dismiss these nudgings to our neighbors, to our co-workers. Let's not dismiss them. If you want your life to have purpose, if you want your life to be aligned with God's purpose, we must listen to the still, small voice of the Spirit and do it. Because you say so, Jesus, we'll drop the nets. Peter, of course, had the luxury of, of seeing the living Jesus. So he knew this command was really from God. And he did it, despite how ridiculous it seemed. But if we've been reading along Luke's gospel carefully, we should be able to trust this Jesus, too. This should remind us of, of, uh, of another echo in Scripture. It should remind us of something we've, of, some, of another person who said something very similar. So let it be with me according to your word. You remember that? You remember who said that? I'll be really impressed if someone can guess. Mary, Yes. These are the words of Mary, mother of Jesus. Before she became the mother of Jesus, she's told this radical idea that she will bear the child of God. And so she says, let it be with me according to your word. Now, the, the Greek here, if you, if you trace it out, if you look at, at the Greek closely, the, the sentence structure is the same, and then the same words are used for at your word. So this, because you say so, or as some translations read, but at your word, Jesus, I'll let down the nets. The point here is that, that what Mary experienced as this wild, crazy thing that God was doing in her, what Peter experienced as this wild, unusual call, they, they, they both said, I don't know about it, but at your word, Jesus. I'll drop the nets. Let it be with me according to your word. So Peter adopts this attitude, and he does what Jesus says. And let's just say, when he does this, he's pleasantly surprised. Actually, he's freaked out of his mind. Their catch was so huge, their nets were splitting apart. And he had to call over to the other crew and get their boat, and still that wasn't enough. Their boats began to sink. That's how many fish there were, friends. And when Simon saw the catch, our scripture text says, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, leave me, Lord, for I'm a sinner. Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. 
Why does he say this? Why doesn't he just leap for joy and give Jesus a hearty thanks and start digging his teeth into some fish? I think Peter falls on his knees and says this because he knows the truth about himself. He knows that he is a failure, not just as a fisherman, but as a person. His failures cling to him as tight as his skin. He quickly realizes that he's not good enough to be in Jesus' presence. He knows who he is, and he can't imagine how in the world Jesus would accept him. This Jesus is is too great for me, too other. He's out of my league. I'm nothing but a gruff Galilean. I drink too much. I curse too much. My past is too dirty for me to be a part of what Jesus has going on. Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Friends, have you been there with Peter, down on your knees, ever attuned to all your shortcomings, your inadequacies, your failures? I've got news for you. Actually, Jesus has something to say directly to you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch people. You see, weakness is the number one qualification for ministry. Ministry of all sorts. Ministry in the church, in the workplace, in the neighborhood, in third places. Weakness is the number one qualification for ministry. I heard that line... Shortly before I went to college, as a, in the summer before my freshman year, and that line haunted me because I was deeply in tune with my flaws, deeply embarrassed by my speech impediment, felt dirty from my habitual sin, and I hope and I knew that I was not good enough to be in God's holy presence. Apart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. But Jesus said to me, and I hope him hearing, I hope you hear him say to you even now, don't be afraid. For when you've fallen at the feet of Jesus, no matter what else has fallen with you, your your past, your failures, your shortcomings, when you fall at the feet of Jesus, Christ will pierce your heart with his eyes of grace. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch people. The word of forgiveness and the word of, 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 of courage connects with our mission. So friends, let us kneel at the, kneels, at the knees of Jesus. Let us be hungry for his word and let us catch people. We do this not just with any ordinary net, but with the message of the good news of God's kingdom. And if we don't feel up for the task... Well, good, because that's right where Jesus needs us in order to use us. Let's pray. Lord, we press in to hear your word. We are so hungry for good news. Not just any news, but news of a God who is with us, (laughs) 
We are so hungry for news that you're real, that you want to do something with our one and only life. And so we pray, God, that your word would pierce our hearts with your grace and you would send us out on mission to love God, love others, and be disciples who make disciples. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.